Hello, everyone. Quick update. The podcast has moved. We have a new website, which is www.lionrock.life slash courage to change podcast. Again, that's www.lionrock.life slash courage to change podcast. And our new email address is podcast at lionrock.life. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. And you have downloaded after the episode, and I am here with my amazing producer, Wonder Woman, Christiana Kimmick. Hello. Oh, you're so sweet. I love you. Well, you are. You are Wonder Woman. Um <laughs> And we are here today to talk about, I think, like four different episodes. <laughs> yep. So I made notes, but do you want to tell us what episodes we are after the episoding? We're after yeah. the episoding, some very exciting ones. 62, which is Michael Collins. 63, mm-hmm. which is Catherine Kanapke. 65, which is John Sidmore, and 66, Claudia Christian, who just came out this week. Awesome. All amazing, amazing episodes. I know. I'm loving the whole mix. We finally, we had that whole row of Lock guys. Of men. We did. They were, they, they'd, um, they'd taken over for a while, which I loved. Um, but I'm loving that we kind of had the the sequence and every one of these episodes that we mentioned are just so different from the other. I mean, I yes. usually there's some episodes that are like, you know, you can kind of see, you can see the correlation, right, of trauma or substance abuse, but everyone's backgrounds and stories were so unique and so different from each other. So that's what's going to make this a very fun after the episode. I think that really highlights the fact that this is a, a disease that does not discriminate, right? I mean, the, all of the characteristics, even when it's not alcohol and drugs, all of the characteristics fall into place with all these different personalities, walks of life. And we're hearing the same thread of incomprehensible demoralization. We're hearing that same thread of fear and and seeking something to fill the void in every single one of our guests. So I, you know, it just, it reminds me, you can have these people from different, you know, from different walks of life who are different in every way imaginable. But if you struggle with this thing, there is that commonality. Absolutely. And, and I thought what was really interesting in a couple of these episodes, how it, it hit people at different ages, even. Yeah. So Claudia, Claudia was, she, I wrote that down actually, that she, was not, she did not have a substance use problem in her 20s at all. No. She (laughs) says she can look back and see where really ramped up in her 30s and became a problem. Or as you say, is your drinking causing you problems? Then you have a problematic relationship with alcohol. I've used that (laughs) so many times. It's so helpful. Don't put a name to it. Just is it causing you problems? Right. But in her 40s was whenever she was like, oh, this is out of control. Right. And the the progression for Claudia was wild. I was re-listening to it and how 
she, you know, she was talking about going from, you know, needing a drink every six hours to needing a drink every two to needing a drink every hour to needing a drink every 30 minutes to every 20 minutes, you know, to getting a drink. She was, I was re-listening to a part where she's like, I'm a grown ass woman going into a grocery store, I think it was, and putting beer in my pants, stealing beer in my pants with everything to lose, and then going into the car and drinking it and immediately throwing it up because my body's being poisoned and then drinking another one to keep that one down. And just that, you know, like I said, incomprehensible demoralization. You just, but what's, I mean, this didn't happen to her. She, I can't even imagine getting, you know, getting through my 20s and my 30s. And then into my 40s and all of a sudden this, like all of a sudden my relationship with alcohol is so different. How wild would that be? I, I've, that was not my experience, right? I always, from, from day numero uno, we had alcohol and I had a problematic relationship, but I can't, I'm, I can't imagine having a situation where you successfully use a substance, you know, as a, as a part of your life and then it turns on you in such a catastrophic way. Mm-hmm. And so quickly. I mean, like you mentioned, it's 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 progressive. You know, you, the, the definition of a disease is it's chronic, progressive, and fatal. Am I right about that? Yeah. You is right. I is right. Okay. I just wanted to make sure. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I is right. <laughs> I is right. I is right. I is, yes, yes. yes, um, yes. <laughs> and hers, that I thought that was so interesting because I... I I really, after listening to your episode, I thought, okay, how could that have not surfaced a lot earlier? Right. And, and her immediate answer was because she was working. So she had... Right. It was it was uh, channeled. Right. And how, I, I mean, I've done a lot of shoots, you know, I'm definitely no, like, not even in the same planet <laughs> career-wise as she is with dance or, or, you know, like performing arts. But I do know and can relate to what she was talking about where she said she has to show up for a photo shoot at a certain time in the morning and how the director of photography can tell if someone drank the night before and how you can be fired from set. Dance was very much that way as well. If you showed up and you looked disheveled or you looked like you weren't going to be able to handle yourself and you were not every iota professional, then, oh yeah, it it would, it, it could ruin your career. So then I thought back and I'm like, oh, that kind of makes sense. And that was you know, but it, I thought that was interesting with it wasn't making the disease go away. It was staving it off for a little longer. Right, right. And, and you know, that cross addiction, right? She was filling the void with something else. Something else was working to, you know, stave it off to keep it at bay. And then at some point, you know, the levee broke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, the unbelievable story. What else stood out for you from her episode? She mentioned that, uh, well, two things that I wrote down. One was the sexual abuse by the neighbor. She said something that was interesting about how you kind of want attention as a teen, but then you get the wrong attention and then, then it goes, it, you know, <laughs> you end up in this situation that was not the, the, you know, the attention you wanted or somehow planned for whatever you probably didn't plan. But I thought that was an interesting point about how there's a hormonal, which kind of leads into my next thing. There's a hormonal desire for attention around sexuality at a certain age, but not from the adult neighbor, you know, or not from insert whatever it is and how these are topics and things that y- you're new to. And so 
the importance of having conversations. I, I was thinking about my own experience. I was thinking about, you know, my kids and, and other people that I know about how, oh, how important is it to have the conversation about it's okay, it's normal to have that desire for that attention or to um, feel good about that attention. And if the attention comes from XYZ place, you know, we can talk about it to have those open channels of communication with an adult to, to help you walk through those things. And when you have a environment at home that does not allow conversation for those topics, you get into situations where someone, you know, where, where complicated sexual scenarios that are just over their head. And, and I do think that that's a lot of that happens where it's like, there's a desire for attention and the, the, you know, the, that brings out the predators when really it's natural in the sense that they want it from their peers. Which is so sad because it takes away and it, it, it quite honestly steals and robs it from a young woman to be able to explore who she is, her sexuality as she's growing and to not be ashamed of herself and to not be ashamed of, you know, reaching out. And, and, you know, it, just like you said, it's, it's such a, a, it's almost like a rite of passage being a teen just to like want to flirt, figure yourself out. What are your boundaries? Like what are, you know, it's just, you should have every right to feel comfortable and, and to feel like you should be able to do that. I, I remember I came, oh, my poor sister, I'm going to tell her about this so she doesn't get mad at me. <laughs> I remember my mom um, wasn't kind of absentee, you know, for a a long while actually growing up. And so I would come home from college and and I'm five years older than my middle sister and I'm eight and a half years older than the youngest. So we had quite the age gap, you know, high school, middle school, elementary school at one point. Now it doesn't matter. We're best friends. But I remember coming home and, you know, I'm, I'm 18, 19 years old. I think I came home from college. I came home as often as I possibly could to make sure that, you know, my sisters were doing well. And, and uh, she's 14 and she's let me just say, developed a lot quicker than the rest of us did. So she hit that <laughs> stage real fast. And um, she had like the kind of boobs that you get a boob job to have oh, at like 14. So unfair. My sister too. It's so unfair. Yeah. It just like, just totally just yeah. like, uh, she like, don't, she still don't really need a bra. Yeah. It's bullshit. Oh yeah. No, she, she didn't need one. And yep. I was like, wait, yep. I'm 19 and I don't look like this. Mm -hmm. Like, what, how, mm -hmm. this isn't fair. And you're yep. 14. Like, what? I'm still waiting for my boobs to grow. In. Oh, it was so unfair. But she, she still is and and was very beautiful. But I come home and we had this flat driveway and we had this basketball hoop at the end of the driveway. So a lot of the neighbor kids would come over because we lived on a big hill. So it was kind of tough to find a driveway that was flat enough to play like an actual good game. This is in Atlanta. So we had a little bit more, you know, driveway space than we do here now, which is like a postage stamp. And I just remember pulling up and I kind of like I hit the driveway and I'm looking and I'm like, I'm not seeing this happening right now. It's my sister in a bikini very well endowed. It's her bikini from like last season before she became well endowed. So we're like bordering on the edge of like Playboy bunny nipple, here. nipple tassels. Oh, for sure. And um, like shorts that are like either the halfway zip, like the mm -hmm. kind of thing you'd be oh, wearing yeah, yeah. at the Bold boots, down. right? Mm -hmm. like, yep. Totally. And she's playing basketball. <laughs> so I'm watching and like the, I'm watching these neighbor boys, right? And like these are really sweet boys. Like I know 
for sure nothing would have happened. I I know these kids to this day and they're phenomenal people. But like, you know, I had tiger mom instincts because our mom wasn't really around. And so I handle it so horribly, my poor sister. I I end up stripping her of like this, you know, this moment, right? That she, I'm talking about having the freedom to explore yourself. right. I see my sister bouncing around yeah, in you're like, the tiny uh, speaking river and I like floor it into the driveway and like break up the basketball game. And I jumped out and I was like, what the hell is happening right now? But, you know, not, not the best way, you know, said some choice words about my sister's outfit, told the boys that they were, you know, boarding on the, on the edge of perversion and sent them home. Screwed. It, it was, it was not a good situation. Not your I'm finest hour. This up. No, not, not my finest hour. I'm a 19 year old trying to, parent a 14 year old it's not working very well so i think the reason why i'm bringing that up is because i definitely didn't help my sister in that moment to be like hey this is good yeah (laughs) yeah well it's scary for you oh so it was terrifying especially because i lived an hour and a half away so i'm like how do i protect her so i'm just gonna be volatile and i'll protect her that way right which never would have worked she's but it's um the instinct is right though when you think about it because the instinct is you need to be protected because you don't understand what you're walking into you don't understand what you have you don't understand what the stakes are and you know how could you how could you and you know i, I think that's something that we all go through unfortunately you have these situations at like Claudia described, which was she is going through a, she is in the norm. She is going through a normal stage of her life, but she's made to feel she, that, that is preyed upon because she is made to feel like she's doing something wrong. And that's the thread in the story that keeps it secret and, and shame, you know, all the things like that kind of, you know, you did something she talks about like, oh, I was wearing normal shorts kind of deal. And, and so, yeah, I, I really was like, yeah, that, that piece, I think a lot, a lot of times people don't mention the fact that when this stuff happens, there is an underlying desire to be noticed, but then, 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 then that attention comes in in the wrong way. And then there's the difficulty dealing with it or the inability outright inability to deal with it, which can, um, and so that hormone conversation kind of links me to the other thing she said, which was that there is a strong relationship between alcohol consumption and menstrual, menstrual cycles, hormones. She said, I, every time I relapsed, I was PMSing. And she mentioned a, a paper that I looked up in the ARC women's mental health journal, it looks like published in December, 2015 called the Re- the relationship between alcohol consumption and menstrual cycle, a review of the literature. And you know, it says what you think it'll say that there's a strong correlation between these surges in hormones and people drinking. So I, uh, interesting. It also says, uh, I'm just going to read this little piece here. It says, research has shown that women and men also respond differently to alcohol. Specifically, women become intoxicated with lower quantities of alcohol. Okay, that's pretty obvious. Among individuals who eventually develop alcohol use disorders, women progress more quickly from initial use to abuse than men, a phenomenon called telescoping. Yet there has been an overall dearth of research investigating alcohol use in women. A recent report indicated existing studies either neglect to include women or fail to account for gender differences. So I thought that that was important 
you know, to talk about like, hey, our bodies are different. And yes, we're getting sober and, 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 you know, we relate to men. And, but if we're having these surges, you know, postpartum, perimenopausal, menopausal, PMS, you know, there's a lot going on. And that needs to be taken into consideration. And I really appreciated that she talked about that because I do think that that is a, that's not something that's talked about in terms of the difference between sobriety as a man and a woman. I mean, certainly not like in my 12 step experience that it was never discussed that, hey, we have this. I think we always knew, but it was not discussed, hey, you have this disadvantage. <laughs> Absolutely. Of, of these, you know, shifting hormones. Right. Have you, I mean, so, you know, alcohol, it, it turns into sugar in your body. Have you ever noticed a difference between your sugar consumption at certain points of oh, PMS yeah. as well? Oh, so, my God. Yeah. So not only, here's what I've noticed. Not only do I, you know, everyone kind of laughs about, you know, it's cravings, chocolate. My husband right. even kind of makes fun of me like, oh, honey, you need me to get you ice cream, right, right, right. ice cream, you know, cause you and I can't do the dairy, but still <laughs> coconut ice cream with carob chips and ugh, all this, you know, stuff. But what I've noticed is one day before my cycle starts and I've calc- I've calculated this, I can eat inordinate amounts of sugar. Normally I'm pretty balanced. So I'll eat something and I know where to stop. Like I can stop myself before finishing a dessert if I know it's going to take me over the edge of being sick. I'm very sensitive to wow. stuff like that. I'm impressed. I know. That's impressive. I know. I'm, must must is, be nice. <laughs> this is why you don't want to have you don't want to have my brain tight. What are you talking about? Many things. Oh my god, <laughs> the ability to stop before you overdo it. I'm I'm amazed. I'm, I'm fascinated. Feel, I feel like things, I mean, I can feel when the next bite is going to take me there or like, mm. oh, I know it's going to be two bites. It's I can't do it. I just can't stop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm like, this is going to hurt and we're going for it. Yep. And here we go. Yep, yep exactly. <laughs> but I've noticed the day before I can eat inordinate amounts. I mean, amounts that would make me vomiting ill. And I'm just like, my body's like, cool, we're good. You know, you just keep going. You can keep shoveling in. So I thought that was so interesting that she brought that up. Yeah, the cravings. I mean, you're, you're, I mean, this is so, (laughs) you're as the female body is doing incredibly complex, you know, we have incredibly complex systems going on. And, and, And not to say that there aren't complex systems going on in men, although questionable sometimes, but, um, <laughs> but we love you guys. Yeah. Questionable. Um, but, uh, I could say that I have two sons. Uh, so, but I think that we do, we don't rather, we don't include much information or we don't give enough attention to the fact that the massive hormone swings that naturally happen throughout a woman's life are going to be a factor in sobriety. I did not. I have been calling my journey since my twins were born postpartum sobriety because there's this swing, right? I mean, getting pregnant, I was pregnant and not, you know, I'm not, I guess everybody tries not to drink while they're pregnant. So I guess I'm in good company, but (laughs) you go through that whole, you know, you go through all of that hormonal shift and then after postpartum, that whole hormonal shift. And then, you know, eventually, I mean, when I even talk about it, I really start to feel like women 
have a serious raw deal here because then there's perimenopause and menopause. But, you know, that's a lot. That's, you know, it's a, it's a lot like, Hey, stay stable, stay stable, use all your coping skills. Don't freak out. Even though your body is like swinging and growing eyeballs, growing, (laughs) you know, growing a, don't worry, there's just a human, you know, or whatever, whatever it is, or, or, you know, or you're just your menstrual cycle just on its own. I mean, it's frequent. It's frequent enough to change the chemistry of your body. I mean, I can feel the change in the chemistry of my body. So we really just do not give enough attention to the fact that this is going to be a variable in your recovery and it needs to you need to be paying attention to it because it may help you to be able to identify why feelings are starting to get bigger why cravings are changing and our male counterparts who don't have that i almost said technology who don't <laughs> don't have that biology or technology are not like technology it it feels like technology yeah totally i need the on off button restart (laughs) reset reset you know that they're not dealing with i think that's i see that in a lot of my you know male friends who are sober they just it doesn't seem like they have to work as hard at it yeah it's kind of unfair to be a woman i shouldn't say that i'm thankful to be a woman i just am not thankful for my period <laughs> yeah yay whoever wrote that song i enjoy being a girl for sure is a dude for sure no woman in their right mind would have written that song i don't know, you know I, that one no i don't know that one. Oh well i'm a musical geek so <laughs> what's it from flower drum song i'm not singing oh it yeah because i'm That's... too congested but <laughs> no i i i don't feel the same way i don't feel i i just I guess because I in my brain, I'm like, it doesn't matter what I think about it. It is what it is. I think there's a, a special, something very special about it, but I, I, it's, it's a more complex existence. No question. Very much more complex, complex existence. And I think it's only just starting to be understood is the wrong word. Respect, Maybe brought to the light. Yeah. Respected as such. That's good. Um, yeah, I think that, but anyway, that, so, so I, I liked that she brought that into, um, her recovery and, and talking about that. And as it relates to the Sinclair method, mm-hmm. what did, I know you had some thoughts about the Sinclair method. You asked her some great questions based off of biases that are out there based off of some questions that you had as well. Did you have any other additional thoughts about that? You know, I, in my early days, I very much was loyal, if you will, to 12-step and all of the trappings that come along with that and would have said all sorts of judgmental, you know, contempt prior to investigation, things about the Sinclair method. I, at this point, whatever works, great. Whatever works. It doesn't have to work for me. It doesn't have to work for the people I know. I don't care. Whatever works. Whatever gets you well. I think there's just... I I don't know if I've said this on the podcast. I'm sure I have. Uh, But, you know, I think we lose the plot. I think the plot gets lost uh, a lot of the time in terms of the how you get into recovery, what your recovery looks like, what the... You know, if it... The point of getting into recovery, whatever that looks like, is to live a better, happier, more successful life. And successful means whatever you want it to mean. So if that's the goal, then how you get there is 
long as it's not hurting people is really not that relevant. What I do know is what has worked for a lot of people and what I have seen or what I have studied, right? So with the Sinclair method, it's not something I relate to. And that, but that's not the same thing as, that's not the same thing as me thinking that it's a bad thing or that I, I don't like it or whatever the word would be that I'm judging it or don't think people should do it. I think people should do whatever they need to. The the new litmus test that I use now is if my child were struggling with substance use disorder and they came to me and said, I want to do MAT, I want medication assisted treatment, I want to do, you know, Suboxone, I want to try the Sinclair method, I want to, you know, be born again. And that was what's stopped them from killing themselves, I'm on board. Sign me up. Where do, you know, I'm all in because, but when I put it into those terms, right, if it's my kid and it's about their survival, I don't care what it is. I'll do whatever it takes. That takes out the judgment from it for me. So that's how I, that's the, you know, that's how I plug it in and go, okay, am I so judgmental about this that I wouldn't do, I wouldn't agree with it for my child that's dying? Absolutely not. Sign me right up. I don't, you know, because because at that point, right, if it's the thing that's going to save your life, that's really all that matters. So I don't relate to the ability to take something an hour before I'm going to drink and then doing like the discipline around the Sinclair method is not something I relate to. And I understand the science around it and how that it extinguishes the cravings. You know, it it changes the relationship. It rewires neural pathways. I think that's all awesome. And if it worked, great. I, I, my brain does not understand. Like when I think about that, the idea of taking something that stops me from getting drunk and then drinking it, like I would have to, I'm probably in the class of people that would probably need to have some sort of implant. And then, you know, that comes with its own problems because it it stops, you know, real joy and blah, blah, blah. So I just don't, I just don't, I don't, my, my, my alcoholic, my alcoholic brain, my alcoholism is desperately seeking a way to outsmart the Sinclair method so that I, it, so that it can get drunk without ever having done it. Wow. Right. So yeah, it's like. I, I physically, mentally, emotionally have a response to that that is abnormal. So I don't know. I'm not saying it wouldn't work for me. I'm just saying that's the reaction I have today at 14 plus years sober, which is I just don't know how I, I, I can't imagine a world in which I would do that because it would undo the thing I'm seeking and by that rationale, maybe I wouldn't do it. So anyway, if it's saving lives and if it's if there are people where they that is the way for them to get to where they need to be, by all means, I'm I'm thrilled. I'm so glad that it exists. And if that's what people, you know, if that's something that people want to try in order to see if it's the right fit for them. Absolutely. I, I, whatever gets you to where you want to go into that next level to that next healthy place, by all means, you know, as long as it's not hurting anybody. Yeah. That's a good point. That's, and I, I know you and you and Claudia 
I think brought that up towards the end of the interview as well. I think you had some thoughts and it, it had to do with sugar relating to the hormones, affecting the hormones, uh, you know, in Claudia's episode. And there were some specific things that stood out to you with that in relation to Michael Collins episode, which is number 62. So I'm I'm not sure, I'm not sure which questions you're specifically thinking of, but I was very, you know, I have been on the podcast, have talked a lot about my struggles with food and with sugar and flour in particular. And um, I, you know, I had something that had sugar. I went out to lunch with my dad and had something that had sugar in it today. And I can feel, you know, accidentally, and I can feel like I'm more tired. I, you know, I keep having the urge, like I can feel the change in my body when I, when I do that. And it has a profound effect on me and, and as did, you know, other things as did, you know, and I, I have a very allergic to things and, you know, I have a very sensitive, sensitive, so I have a sensitive system. I'm a, I'm not an HSP. I'm, maybe I am, maybe that makes, I'm a highly, I'm a physically highly sensitive person. Just about uh, to say your body is an HSP. Yeah, my Maybe body is an HSP. Your mm-hmm. body is an HSP. My body is definitely an HSP in a, in a big way. And so when he talks about, you know, I, I, I shared about how, you know, that when I first heard that alcohol metabolizes into sugar, I had this flash and uh, I was telling my mom over the weekend that, you know, because she, she was saying, you know, wine is just straight sugar. In When I was in high school, I used to bring bottles of wine, red wine, to house parties, bottles, a teenager, bottles of red wine to a house party. I would walk into the house party. I would find some curtains and hide my other, my extra bottles behind the curtains so that no one, I didn't have to, you know, I'm not a big sharer when I'm drinking. And uh, so I'd hide, I'd hide my wine and I would be in these parties. Like when I look back, when I think back to him, like, oh my God, no one said anything to me. Like, dude, that's weird. I, dr- I had a bottle of red wine that I was drinking like a beer. But, and, and but. I, so I would drink like bottles of red wine. That's all. In, in one night. Oh yeah. In one night. Oh God. Oh yeah. Were you vomiting profusely? No, no. You gotta do you gotta do some blow with it and you're fine. Oh my God. Um so, so this is what I missed out on from not partying in high school because yeah. I wasn't cool. I'm not gonna <laughs> say you didn't miss out because I'm just I'm just not gonna say it. I just I, re- I refuse to lie to you like that. Uh so you know, that sugar effect, right? And there I have I have that. And so, you know, sugar alcohol metabolizes into sugar. Like that's a <laughs> that's that's, you know, my two favorite things, alcohol and sugar. I mean, that is, that is, it just hitting you. And he, I'm talking about, it's a psychoactive drug of abuse that changes your state of mind. Absolutely. He also talks about the dose making the poison. Well, clearly I was not so good with the uh, dosages. Then he talked, this is Michael Collins. Then he talked about sugar as an analgesic, as a pain reliever. He used the example of sweeties, which I had never heard of where they dip uh, some sort of pacifier into a sugar, a high sugar content mixture, and then they give that to the baby as they circumcise them because it's used as an analgesic. You know, I guess when I think back to it, when or when I, not back to it, but when I think about it, you know, we used to have cocaine and Coca-Cola back when like Coke was cool, mm-hmm. right? And In the 30s. Yeah. yeah. 
take me back. Um, Coca-Cola. Yeah, Coca-Cola. That's where the name comes from, in case anybody didn't know. (laughs) There's a whole history on it. It's true. So cured headaches. Hell yes, it cures headaches. (laughs) It cures a lot of things. It gives you some other things while it's there. (laughs) Oh, man. I can't even go there because I just get like very excited to think about the fact that you could walk into a store and buy Coca-Cola with cocaine in it. But again, you know, that's to say the same thing. You know, we can go back to weed. We can go back to, you know, alcohol. You walk in, you know, similar things. But anyway, lost my train of thought talking about cocaine. Sorry. (laughs) No, no, it's not your fault. It's the cocaine. Oh, it was cocaine's fault. Yeah. (laughs) Damn it. Um, Coke. But when, so Bayer was what used to sell heroin and the, the, the pharmaceutical company and, oh yeah, look that up. And huh? Bayer. I'm sorry. That it, like, yeah, I don't want to give I don't want to give the history of it because I'll totally mess it up. But ba- like as in here's your over-the-counter heroin? Yeah, because it was it's a pain reliever, like morphine. Oh my god. Yeah. It's a, what? It's an opiate. It's a pain reliever. Like we give we give opiates. It's not that different from from oxy. It's not that, you know, we again. True, true. You know, okay. so so have to look up this history. Yeah. I don't want to I don't want to say it because I'll totally I'll embarrass myself. But so we used to have, you know, Bayer used to sell heroin. Coca-Cola used to put cocaine in their Coke. I guess. <laughs> Coke in the Coke. There was Coke in the Coke. And, uh, <laughs> and so I guess when I think about it, it's not that insane that we have this psychoactive drug dumped into all our food, right? Like... That is crazy to think right? about. You know, you're, it, it's it, the profoundness of what you're... Yeah. Right, the profoundness of what you're saying. Yes, I mean it's not. Yes. it's not that far fetched, right? And, right, and and when you, oh my gosh, when you go deep dive on the food industry and all the other stuff they put in our food, it's not that crazy that we have all of this. In fact, maybe sugar is the least of our issues at this point. But for me, it really went along with what I have experienced firsthand, which is kind of what Claudia talked about too, which is that you can easily and likely will if you struggle with one addictive substance or addictive process once you put that down it is you will try to your your addict your ism i self me as we say will try to pick something else up and to to fill that and that's why the act of being in sobriety of being in recovery is work right is a constant thing because you are on an escalator and that escalator is moving and you have to be moving. If you're not moving up, you're moving back, right? If you're not making progress, there's no standing still in recovery. It's an escalator. You stand still, you're going backwards. You're getting closer to that drink, drug, whatever it is, that that addictive I, self, me, substance, thing, process, whatever. And so it's always, you're always having to take steps forward on this escalator to get to where you need to go. And so that that movement often looks like you pick something else up along the way. And so the fact that sugar is that thing that, you know, I'm always looking for something that changes the way I feel, right? I want to pick me up. I want to feel better. I want to feel better. I want to feel better. And it just, it seems like such an obvious thing that, that so many of us deal with and that wreaks havoc on our systems. I mean, I just had no, I bought, he talked about a book called Sugar Blues that was written in the eighties, which I did buy. Oh man. I mean, it's just like with anything, right? I mean, I'm sure we could pick up 
I'm sure we could pick up books on all sorts of topics that would scare the crap out of us. And um, again, the dose makes the poison. I know there's lots of people who can manage their sugar intake and not have a problem, but there's many. Uh, there are many of us that cannot, and there are many of us that are trying to manage it, and it makes our lives unmanageable. And that's been my experience. So hearing him talk about that and also talk about the difficulties within the family system of changing your food patterns, especially if people in your family have those, you know, relate to those patterns or are still in that process working on their own stuff. He really affirmed for me the difficulty that that can be when you're trying to get into recovery with your eating disorder or your disordered eating, whatever way you want to look at it and how that affects your relationships, your family systems when you choose to eat differently than the people around you. And I I was grateful for his response and an affirmation around the difficulty of that because it's real. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Even um, I know, so you went off dairy after the twins were born, you were, you became completely intolerant mm-hmm. and like that's a pretty horribly big allergic. shift. That's a pretty big shift still, even though nowadays there's so much recognition surrounding dairy gluten intolerance. There's a lot of different intolerances and now there's substitutions for that, which is amazing. But even just, I've had to go off dairy too. And I went off 10 years ago when I did, I made the correlation that it was causing like cystic acne on my face and I'd never suffered with acne. Just that alone, that difficulty of taking dairy out of my life and then how it affected relationships afterwards and how like, I remember I used to go, there was a, a family I lived with at one point and I'd go over to their house for dinner and and like meet them once a week for dinner. And I told them like, hey, I can't have dairy, which includes cheese. You know, I'd make the list and be like, hey, let me know if I need to bring my own food and butter. And I'd be like, hey, let me know if I need to make my own food. Like, don't want to put anybody out. I understand. Like, I'm learning about this too. And I can't tell you how many times I'd go and like I was purposely not told that there was milk, cheese, all this stuff in the food. And then and then after I took a few bites, they would tell me that that stuff was in the food and then tell me it was all in my head. And like, it was just like, we, the, okay, hang on a second. You know, and that's just, that's just dairy. Right. Like, right. That's, that's just, easier than sugar. You know, I think, like that's so generalized. I th- the dairy thing for me was a lot easier because I became, first of all, I love dairy and everybody knew that. So for me giving up dairy, it's like, hell must have frozen over because (laughs) didn't they call you the dairy queen? They called me the dairy queen. Yeah. I mean, hell must have frozen over. So the fact that I gave up dairy and literally would not go near it, would not go near it like uh, under any circumstances. I mean, I'm, I like to test the last time I, I don't know, I was pissed about something and we have this shout out to Terra Mia pizza in, uh, in Laguna Hills. We have this Oh my God, this pizzeria is the best pizza I've ever had in my life. And they, anyway, the last time I had, like I chose to have dairy, like I didn't accidentally eat it. I ate, I I think I ate a full pizza, which isn't normal. And uh, that's a lot to, to myself. And I was so violently ill. And then since then I've had, I've had it in things and I just, it's, I get so violently ill. So that is recognized by my loved ones. But 
when I choose, so it's kind of like, I don't really have that. That's much easier because I don't really have a choice. I mean, I really don't have a choice there. I, most people get diarrhea when they are lactose intolerant. I vomit. That's how fast my body wants it out of my, saying, my system. Doesn't it? I mean, your body is like exiting it's, all it's like, forms, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. But the first thing, thing, the first thing within 30 minutes, I'm vomiting. I mean, my body wants it out. So I say that not to gross everyone out, but to say that, you know, when you have a reaction like that, that's very visible for people, that's, you know, then it's like, oh, we believe you. Oh, oh, yes. When you're choosing to take something out of your diet that is inconvenient for other people that you eat with or cohabitate with. I mean, my husband and I can not eat in this at the same places. It's total pain in the ass. You know, that becomes more of a, well, do you really need to do this? Is this, a, is this a fad? Is this, you know, that then you get into all that stuff. And I think when you have a eating disorder or, or disordered eating, whatever that looks like for you in your life, whatever you want to call it, you have a long history of trying a lot of different things to get, to, you know, trying to get it under control by doing hundreds of different things. And so I think people get burnt out on, you know, oh, they're now they're doing, you know, the, the cleanse, the, this cleanse. Now they're doing, you know, paleo. Now they're doing, uh, you know, they took this ingredient out and gluten-free, you know, whatever it is. And so I think people get kind of burnt out on, okay, what's what she doing now. And I totally get that. I completely understand. Unfortunately, that's the journey, right? Is to like figure out what it is. And and there's real value in getting, in seeking the answers to try to arrest whatever that, you know, difficulty is. And for me, it's been a long journey. And I appreciated very much that he was willing to affirm the fact that, you know, it is, it's hard in your, in your relationships. It, it, it affects your relationships, the conversations you have, and also the realizations that you have that I have when I take those things out of my diet and then the things I see it doing to other people, right? You see, <laughs> and, and keeping your mouth shut, like, you know, stay in your own lane, mind your own business, you know, and um, that becomes difficult too, because now you see it happening to other people and you want to share and you want to, you know, give back or whatever. And, um, and again, remembering like, I have, I've had to go on my own journey too. It's not like, it's not like 10 years ago, I didn't consider going off sugar and flour. I just didn't, I wasn't ready to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't like someone telling me that was going to make a difference. So I have to remember that and really go back to that. But it was, he, you know, he's just such a wealth of knowledge in that space. And I think it's a, you know, um, drugs and alcohol kill you so fast that, you know, or can kill you so fast that it's the first thing we focus on. We're not, we're not focusing on the cigarettes. The cigarettes aren't going to kill you right away. They're going to kill you just not right away. Um, and I think it's the same with the food stuff, um, within, you know, within reason, which is we're going to focus, we're going to triage, we're going to focus on the most fatal thing first, and then we'll shift our focus to the other things if we even do. And I think that that piece, if we even do, is really important. Yeah, that's good. I know Catherine Kanapke also struggled with an eating disorder. I think she struggled, though, with restricting. I don't, I don't <laughs> think she struggled with binging. Yes, I do yes. not relate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but that was a different story. Was that the one where we talked about how our personalities were 
So I think this is, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this, this is, is the, the one, one where we talked about how the res- the personality of the person that restricts, no, no, whatever. It doesn't matter. It, and it was um, Alyssa. Um, the personality of the person oh. who restricts, restricts joy in their life in lots of other ways, right? That was Alyssa. Episode 50. Yeah, 50. They restrict in every area of their life, they're, rest- you know, that they, they, that is their form of control. Whereas my personality and the personality of the, you know, the binger, the compulsive of reader is the indulgent and the impulsive indulgent. And I thought that was really interesting in terms of how that manifests because the person that's really indulgent and all about do it now, do it here, do it big, do it fast, whatever, that person is trying to absorb as much because there's scarcity. There's, it's never going to be enough. We have to do it now, you know, get it all in. Whereas the restrictor, they're looking at the world differently. And so food is such an interesting indicator, the relationship with food as a sense of nourishment, as a sense of self-care is such an interesting indicator of the feelings towards oneself and, and their life. Right. No, that's, that's a really good, good um, point. Cause I know Catherine grew up, she was Mennonite background out of Ohio. And so it was that like pacifism upbringing where you had to just be thankful for everything in front of you. And so I think there was that, you know, that self-taught, restriction where like you're not asking for more you don't want to overexert you know or or ask anybody for anything you just had to deal with what was in front of you and that was really interesting how it was almost like a like a self-punishing behavior that came out later on in life where it was like she's doing well and you know we actually saw that out of um we're not talking about this episode, but I'm still going to bring it up. Episode 51, Ben Morosky with self-harm and how there was definitely a strictness in his upbringing. You know, his family was a part of a, a, a I guess like a evangelical cult, I believe it was, and how he his self-harm originated from like him needing to restrict from and follow rules to such a degree where it just took all the joy out of him, you know, and it was like, that was his form of connecting and feeling something, feeling anything, but feeling like he was still in control and doing the right thing. But then also nobody could tell him to like, that was his own thing. That was like the the self-injury was his thing. I, I obviously an extremely different story, but I heard a lot of the same things out of Catherine where it actually almost sounded like she was very proud at one point of yeah, like yeah, yeah, her yeah. like that the that ability. portion, the ability yeah. And I, I saw that in a lot of girls growing up in high school. That was a very I didn't understand a, quite as much about it, you know, being a high schooler and and you know not walking through it. But I do remember seeing the restricting being something they were very proud of. Yeah, and I mean, they'd earned. it looks hard. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can't for the life of me do it. I mean, I know it's, it's just not, I, you know, again, it's, but it's interesting. It's just not my nature in my, it's not just, it's not just food. It's my nature. I'm just, I'm just wired differently. And it's interesting to see how that, how that comes out in all the ways, how all the different ways it's, it expresses itself. It's not just there, but that's one way that it expresses itself. And, and she was the same. And, I thought that it was just really fascinating how she goes from Mennonite passive community to a negotiation institute. I mean, yep, 
And she's the COO of the negotiation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, that's just mind <laughs> with blowing. a podcast. Mind, yeah, right. mind blowing to me. Total transformation. Total transformation. Going from passive to negotiation. I mean, not the same thing. And it, and it's really cool. It's really cool when people are able to able, willing to step into whatever truth they have and step away from something that no longer works for them or worked, you know, or does never worked for them, whatever. She really embodies that. And it is so cool to hear. And I also, you know, strangely, what stuck with me is her conversations, our conversation about narcolepsy, how she had you know, she had a really, she was just constantly exhausted and tired. And that that was, she, that she discovered that she had a mild form of narcolepsy and she was able to get help with that so that she could experience life in a different way and be more successful. And just, you know, when that, ha- when something like that happens, when someone is seeking answers to something, as I often am, <laughs> you're just more active in your recovery. You're just pushing forward and and trying to find new things and trying to find new ways to tweak whatever you're doing to live the best life that you can. And, And that was just an important part where she said, gosh, you know, other people are telling me that it's not normal to be this tired. She didn't have to take anyone's word for that. I mean, she could have just ignored that forever and, and toughed it out and, you know, trudged on and just been like, I'm just a very tired human. But uh, I think I I admire when people say, you know, I, 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 you know, my experience is abnormal. Maybe there's something to that I'd like to explore and the willingness to just explore stuff and see where it takes you. Right. I, that was for about a week after that, because sometimes I deal with fatigue which I think it's just because I do too much. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm just like, I'm going to pack my schedule. Yeah. But like for like a week after that, I was like, should I get tested for narcolepsy? Oh my God. I, <laughs> I was, I like, was I'm I, very tired. Right I'm now. pretty sure I have narcolepsy, mild form. But it works in my favor because I just pass out whenever I need to. <laughs> I was going to say with twins, that's a superpower to be able to just pass out. Right, exactly. Like I can just boom, fall asleep. So I'll at this point, I'll just... I'll, I'll manage it. Yeah. I'll manage, I'll manage my problem. I'll manage. I thought narcolepsy was like you fall asleep randomly all the time. That's what I thought you're driving. I wish, what is the movie? I know exactly what you're talking about. Is it the Rob Schneider movie? Deuce Bigelow, male gigolo. Is that what you're, yeah. Doesn't he go on a date with a woman who's narcoleptic and he has to, she has like super long hair and he ties her hair to like something on the wall so that that. she doesn't fall on her suit. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. Like, that's, that's right. That's the that's, only thought I've ever had about it. When people, uh, you know, there's so many associations that we get from TV and movie, right? Like AA, I'm sure people, you know, they, they're only my only introduction to that before I was 15 <laughs> um, was in the movies and TV. So I think, you know, the same with like things like narcolepsy or what was it? Tourette's, you know. The, my my only vision or, or or exposure to that was in those things. So yeah, I thought you know you fell asleep while you're driving, and who knew it was going to be more subtle than that? But yeah, I, I think um, I think Catherine was great and really demonstrates that you are 
in much more, you have much more say in the, your direction and, you know, in life and, and that you can take control of that and change the narrative. Absolutely. I loved that about her. And I loved that about her episode. Her episode was, it was really eye-opening in so many ways, you know, and, and I felt like I got a lot out of it and I was really inspired by her. And we have episode 65, John Sidmore, which was a lot of fun too, because he's been through some hell. My God, um, that poor guy. I want to give him a hug. I know. I know. Oh, uh, gosh. It was, I think just thinking about him, talk about overcoming <laughs> where you came from, right? Or or changing the narrative. I mean, he his, he lost his mom and he didn't find out until later that his mom had actually committed suicide. Uh, he was told as a five-year-old that his mom had died of alcohol poisoning, which is still very traumatic. Like, why would you tell a five-year-old that? I guess that's that was kind of my thought. You know, I, I it's terrifying. I don't know. I think I think that the um, I think there are, you know in situations like that there are, there are no good answers. It's complicated, and people are doing the best they can with what they have, and sometimes what they have is not very good. And but it's still the best they can do. And I think that there is this. I, I don't know if this episode is released yet, but we talked to a woman who was adopted. And I think there is this idea that we shelt, sh shield children from information that's, that's, that's difficult. And I even asked her, you know, is that something that, you know, I asked her, like, do you think that children should be told that they are adopted and at what age? And obviously John wasn't adopted, but his, well... I guess he was adopted. Technically, Technically he was yeah. adopted, right? So he, mm -hmm. but he didn't know. And then he found out on his 17th birthday that, you know, he's, his dad is not his dad. His mother died. She killed herself. Although in my head, my thoughts were she drank, you know, he was told she drank herself to death, but really it turned out she killed herself. And my thought was, again, you know, kind of the same same realm. But, you know, I think the lying to protect is a dangerous game, particularly now with, and I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, not saying this to be funny, which is that with 23andMe and, and all of the genetic testing, I mean, you just can't get away with that stuff anymore. Whereas once I think at one point you probably could have, I, that's just not, you know, people going to get their DNA tested and the cat's out of the bag. So, it seems like there were people with limited coping skills who did the best they could and it wasn't very good, right? And and it's sad. It's sad the effect that it had on him. It made me sad for him to hear that, you know, he felt like a pawn used in the scheme to get money from the government when he was on the reservation. He He very clearly said that, you know, his aunt you know, he realized that he was only there so that she could get the funding, um, that that was her income really alluded to that. And then the heartbreak. And, um, I, I just really felt for him. That's a life of a lot of trauma and a lot of intergenerational trauma, a lot of alcoholism. I mean, it was a lot, it's a lot, a lot, a lot. And it's so remarkable that he found his way you know, calling all the treatment centers and that he found his way to this treatment in Florida and sat in a room. And because 
he did not think he would ever see those people again, or he believed that he was in a space where he could be completely forthright. He was able to just let down his guard and tell the truth and that that freed him, that freed him. And then he came back and and he was able to um, do aftercare with Lion Rock, which is, of course, always really cool for me that he was able to do that. And I know he's made some amazing connections through the people that he met doing outpatient treatment there. So that's really cool. And it's just a remarkable thing. I don't think that he's the, I don't think that his circumstances lend, typically lend themselves to long-term recovery, long, long-term abstinence, let alone long-term recovery, which is what he's doing. So I'm, you know, just really impressed by his journey and his will to have a different experience than what was around him. Yeah, absolutely. And to even hear after everything that he's, he'd been through, you know, even with finding out his kids weren't his own. Oh, yeah. To oh, them I forgot and about that. Holy God. That one just threw me I totally, totally forgot away. about that. Yeah. I, I knew there was other stuff, but yeah, your kids aren't yours and he just still raises them. I mean, next level. N- named one of his kids after his brother. You know, I mean, it's uh, just stuff that would just be like, you know, I'd, I'd be like, all right. <laughs> all right um good game jumping good game yeah i gave it a this is give it. it a good try yeah but i think what was so genuine about listening to john um kind of towards the end of his episode even was he's really starting to find joy again and in really simple things which is like exactly where it starts and i think exactly where your foundation is laid and um, the connections he's he's made, like you said, through Lion Rock and through you know his um, his his twelve step that he goes to, and finding that authenticity, you know, has really brought him joy again. And I really was like, I don't know, I I, I just had such a huge respect for him for that because that takes guts and a lot of courage. You know, we we always say like the courage to change and and it's like such an easy phrase to say and it's like in the title of our podcast. So I gloss over it now. And I started thinking about that the other day. I was like the courage to change and just, you know, we were starting to talk about my therapy journey and some of the things that I've been facing. And I remember driving to therapy the other day and just thinking I, I was so I was nervous about what we were going to go over and how I was, oh my God, am I going to be able to handle this? This was really painful. And now we have to go back into the pain. And And it made me think about John. It made me think about a lot of our podcast guests and to and really like valuing that phrase, the courage mm-hmm. to change. It's a, it's a really meaty thing to say. It's really easy to throw it around. It's a really pretty cliche thing to say, but it's the depth of it is is real. It's kind of it's actually kind of gnarly when yeah. you think about yeah. it. There's almost like a sense of like violence to that word, and I don't mean violence in in like a way of like tearing other people down. No, violence as in a fight. How you have to yes, and you have to violently go after your recovery. You have to violently like kick things down, knock walls down, move things out of the way, rip things out of you, and replace them with new things in order to change and knowing who that affects. And even John, you know, knowing that it affects his kids who he is still raising. And I just think like, to me, it's those things and those 
those ways and, and forms of stepping outside yourself and understanding that what you're doing affects so many more people than than you, right? This like you're you're talking about the ism. We all can follow into the I self me, whether you have alcoholism or not. There as people, we are just so inherently selfish and and we're we're human, you know, we're we're made to like look at ourselves and take care of our own needs. And that can be really good in the form of self-care. And then it can go the other way. And and um so I I really heard in his story where he he's taking he first took his recovery seriously and his sobriety seriously for himself and now he's getting to rebuild relationships you know within his immediate family within some of his you know distant family as well and i just thought you know there there weren't like you know john is so he's so funny he's he like he just uses like really simple illustrations doesn't get too excited really easily, but the stuff he's saying is so profound and the work he's doing is so solid. And I just really respect him for that. Yeah. And yeah. really enjoyed hearing hearing from him and hearing his heart in that episode. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm I'm super proud of him. Yeah. Man, this lineup. <laughs> I mean, I can our guests get any better? It's just like blowing my mind. I know. It's really, it's really cool. It's really cool. I'm really grateful for the opportunity. And it's I I just I personally enjoy talk, you know, interview asking people about their lives and learning about their lives so much. So it's uh it's I'm grateful to have the opportunity to do that and grateful that people <laughs> find it useful, want to listen to it. Because without that, without um, that, you know, listenership, um, we're just talking into the wind. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. We are continuing to grow this podcast and our listenership is growing. We're so excited about that. Our numbers have been going up and we're just like, what? We get the opportunity to do this? And Ashley's like, oh my gosh, this is just like a dream come true for for her and, and for me as well. And so please keep supporting us. And the way that you can help support us, which is also supporting our amazing guests, is by rating us. So if you go on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, those are the two places I know you can rate, leave a review, subscribe to our podcast so that you get all the new episodes downloaded immediately as soon as they come out, and then send us an email. Uh, our new email is podcast at lionrock.life. Uh, we're, we are still checking at the old email, so don't worry. That'll forward. Um, but podcast at lionrock.life. We want to hear from you. We want to keep the conversation going. If you have comments or questions, we want to read them live on the air. So reach out to us. Yes, absolutely. Just want to say that I absolutely love getting emails and interacting with all of our listeners, whether that's through Facebook or Instagram, our Instagram account or our email. Really, really love it. So if something stands out to you and you think of it, please reach out. Let us know. We, we love to hear from you. Absolutely. Well, Ashley, you are amazing and a rock star as usual. As are and you. Thank you. Thank you for your amazing insight on this episode. This was really helpful. My pleasure. Until next time. Bye, guys. Bye. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.